Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. You heard the intro music, that means that this show is going to be about technology or the future. This is something of a bonus episode where we gear up to finish the series that has taken up most of the show's running time so far. As you know, I'm kind of liable to throw these out from time to time, but it's my show, so here we go. As such, don't expect anything too miraculous, but I can't stop thinking about this story, and the various ideas and issues that it raises. In some ways, it seems like a perfectly surreal indictment of a lot of the futurist thinking that may be misguided, and our hopes and dreams about technology that might not be realisable. And in some other ways, maybe this is something that we might actually have to think about fairly soon. Not just yet, though. Here's the short version of the story. Earlier this year, to great fanfare, a startup promised to kill you for $10,000. Then people raised concerns about the business model and the validity of the technology, and now the university MIT that was associated with the startup has moved to distance itself from them. And, you know, they're probably going into dormant hiding somewhere. These are the facts as far as I can make out. So here's the long version. Y Combinator, for those that don't know, is a fairly prominent seed accelerator. Now, to me, that still sounds like a device that flings apple pips at people at high velocity, which is probably one of the devices you can actually buy at Y Combinator. But no, instead, it's a prestigious venture capital organisation that funds new startups. Now, I was just involved in looking at and researching venture capital for long enough to know the difference between an angel and a seed, so I'm not an expert. But Y Combinator uh, comes up all the time in techno literature, and it's prestigious for a reason. The Silicon Valley elite like to hobnob there. And in the past, it's funded famous startups like Dropbox, Airbnb, Coinbase, who sell cryptocurrencies, Reddit, Twitch, etc. The companies that it's invested in have a combined worth now of $80 billion. It's interesting to look at the list of the original companies um, and see which ones have succeeded and which ones have failed from 10 years ago. I think we all have this concept that all you need is some brilliant idea, filling some niche that no one could have previously anticipated. A concept like Uber, for example. But of course there are some people who seem to have perfectly good ideas, or at least perfectly similar to other companies that go on to be successful, but it's not quite enough for them to succeed in the long term. But I think we all have this image of Silicon Valley startup companies. Maybe it's based on their own self-image, the glowing press releases that make up so much of this stuff. You imagine sleek offices, ideas bursting from the brightest minds of the soon-to-be billionaires. Maybe it's just all inspired from clips from the social network where angry techno-yuppies yell at each other about stock prices and so on. But increasingly, of late, my vision is of a bunch of people throwing darts at a Wheel of Fortune dartboard with Black Mirror episode titles on it. They really are stealing ideas straight from dystopian sci-fi. I mean, picture it. Oh, so we're going to be creating digital versions of people scraped from their social media profiles. Sure. Robot bees, though, will leave that one to Walmart. Yeah, both of those were Black Mirror ideas and startups. Attorney.me promises to scrape your social media data to create a, quote, digital ghost of you for your loved ones to remember you by. Colour me really, really sceptical about that idea. While Walmart does have a patent for robot bees, like the ones out of the Black Mirror episode Hated in the Nation, for those that have seen it. But this idea that they're just stealing concepts from Black Mirror, well, how else to explain Nectomy, the new company that's taken the social media world by storm? For the low, low fee of $10,000, they promise to kill you. With a tagline like 100% fatal, how can you refuse? There's a waiting list already. They promise you a refund if you change your mind. Although, of course, you'll have to change your mind before they remove it. Because the idea is to remove and preserve your brain. 
So this idea was first pitched at a Y Combinator demo day, where eager startup founders try to get funded by, or at least get attention from, various business moguls and investors. The business model jumps headlong into transhumanism. What if we told you we could back up your mind, booms the website. Well, yeah, what if I told you that I had a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you? Anyway, the idea is that the brain is preserved by a process they call vitrifixation. According to Nectomy's website, quote, the powerful chemical fixative, glutaraldehyde, will rapidly solidify synapses and prevent decay, transforming the brain from a soft, watery consistency to that of soft rubber, end quote. This is why the 100% fatal part comes in. The co-founder, Robert McIntyre, who falls somewhere on the spectrum between futurist visionary and James Bond villain, views this as a form of euthanasia. Quote, The user experience will be identical to physician-assisted suicide, McIntyre said. Sounds pleasant. He also said, Product market fit is people believing that it works. I think I need a degree in neuroscience to interpret that one. After they've turned your brain to rubber, Nectomy promises to freeze it. The idea is then that at some point, at a later date, technology advances enough that you can be revived. In this case, their idea is to scan and upload your brain. Cryopreservation, of course, has a long history. From a persistent urban legend about Walt Disney, who was never actually frozen, to the newer startup Alcor, which has preserved 156 people, with 10 times as many as that queuing up to be frozen when they die. Hopefully Alcor manages to keep the freezers switched on and don't go out of business. You might laugh, but this actually happened. When I was researching this, I stumbled upon an article about the history of cryopreservation via Alcor's own website. The Cryonic Society of New York froze around half a dozen people in the 1960s and 1970s. Of course, what eventually happened was a few of their patients, as they called them, thawed out when their surviving relatives decided they no longer wanted to make payments to keep them frozen. Eventually, though, these early cryonics companies went bust entirely and could no longer afford to maintain the storage facilities, so their patients thawed out entirely. At the time, the press were interested. Quote, The stench near the crypt is disarming, wrote one reporter, strips away all defences, spins the stomach into a thousand dizzying somersaults. Pretty macabre, you can just imagine Bella Lugosi's dead playing in the background. And there was even talk of suing the guy who ran the show, but the whole question is very legally dicey. Some people called him a murderer, but the reality is that these people were already dead. Anyway, assuming that you can get around these financial missteps, and assuming that your surviving relatives want to carry on paying to keep you undead, the hope is that one day future generations will then see fit to revive you if you've been cryogenically preserved. One key concern has often been preventing the formation of ice crystals in the brain and bloodstream, if you simply freeze someone without vitrification beforehand, the cells will be destroyed and any hopes of retrieving the person are seem completely impossible, even with technology that we can foresee being developed in the future. Nectomy gets around this. Unlike previous cryonics attempts, they inject the vitrifying substance, ethene glycol, while you're still alive. The aim here is to preserve what the startup calls your connectomy, and they claim that a similar process has had good results with rabbits. This process won the Brain Preservation Prize, and claims to have preserved each of the synapses in a rabbit's brain, which were then imaged by an electron microscope. The road forward, presumably, is then to simulate the brain in totality. So, once we have this unimaginably complex computer program that can map out each of the synapses, 
of the human brain. And once the human race manages to survive the ensuing singularity when that happens, you just need a means of scanning the vitrified brain, mapping out each of its synaptic connections. And then you upload that data into your brain emulator, and boom, you're immortal. Sort of. Maybe. Maybe not. Of course, like many of these transhumanist pictures, it runs headlong into that strange question that combines philosophy and medical science. What is consciousness? On one level, philosophically, it seems apparent that if you perfectly replicate the structure of your own brain and body, way down to the atomic level, including all of the connections between uh, neurons, including all of the synapses, the result is, well, you. Where else could the consciousness possibly be located? We are, after all, rational 21st century materialists. If you can reproduce someone's atomic structure all the way down, then presumably you have that person. But does the same hold true for your entire brain, or just the neural and synaptic connections? How detailed would a simulation or physical reconstructions of the brain have to be to reproduce your consciousness? We struggle to define these questions just as we struggle to develop a test, or even a coherent definition for what consciousness is, and what it is that we'd seek to preserve. Anders Sandberg of the Future of Humanity Institute in Oxford has been one of the most vocal people about the philosophical problems that the concept of brain uploading entails. Can consciousness ever be embodied in artificial intelligence? And if it is possible to create a consciousness this way, is there a continuity of consciousness? That is to say, when they upload your brain into an emulator or an artificial reconstruction and switch it on, is that the same thing as you, or just a copy of you, with all your memories and experiences? An imposter. It's kind of like the idea of teleportation that people used to worry about when they watched Star Trek with the transporter. If what's happening is someone's atoms are being completely deassembled, the information is transmitted and then reassembled somewhere else, Does consciousness continue through that, or have you just created a copy of yourself and destroyed the original? In which case, what happens to you, the narrative you, the you that wakes up every morning? Does it end? Have you just died and ensured that there will be a copy of you living on? That doesn't seem like the kind of immortality that most people would want. Some hope to resolve this identity problem through a process of gradual transformation. So we'd like to become like the proverbial grandfather's axe. You know, the handle is replaced... Piece by piece, we're replaced by immortal or synthetic alternatives, but there is some continuity there that remains. Replace the handle, replace the prefrontal cortex, merge the soft grey matter with digital enhancements, but it's still my grandfather's cortex, still my grandfather's axe. Of course, no one knows if this would actually work, but it seems less possible with a setup like Nectomies, where the idea is to scan a preserved brain, because at some point, you have to kill the person. In many ways, though, all of these questions are very premature, if they'll ever be relevant. Many neuroscientists believe that restoring consciousness from a preserved brain in this way will be decades away at best, if not completely impossible. Shelley Fan, who works with me at Singularity Hub, wrote an excellent article about the science behind the company. She notes that while the brain preservation technology used by Nectomy is cutting edge and has won awards in the past, there are still significant technological challenges to overcome. She says, quote, Despite billions of dollars and several large-scale brain mapping programs, no one has yet been able to image the entire mammalian brain at the synapse level, not even that of a mouse. We're talking really big scale here. 
The human brain is jam-packed with millions of neurons, each connecting to thousands of others, forming trillions of synapses. Today, even top-of-the-line imaging efforts are struggling with one cubic millimetre of a mouse brain. End quote. So this alone is a huge barrier at the moment. But in principle, it is surmountable. We've seen exponential developments in lots of previous technologies. It used to take millions of dollars and teams of researchers decades to sequence the human genome, and now it can be done swiftly for a few hundred dollars by various different startups. So it's not impossible to imagine that, with a few decades of technological progress, we'll be able to use new techniques to image the brain. But creating a static image of the brain is not the only barrier to overcome, to understand, preserve, and one day hope to revive consciousness. If the technology turns out to one day be feasible, and if it turns out also to be impossible to resolve this identity problem for a setup like Nectomies, it adds to an underlying sense of exasperation with people who take these things very seriously. Neuroscientists are amongst those exasperated. This is from MIT Technology Review. Quote, Fundamentally, the company is based on a proposition that is just false. It is something that just can't happen, says Sten Linnison of the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. He adds that by collaborating with Nectomy, MIT lent credibility to the startup and increased the chance that some people actually kill themselves to donate their brains. He says, It is so unethical, I can't describe how unethical it is. That is just not something we do in medical research. End quote. Not all Silicon Valley types should be tarred with the same brush. But would you really trust your immortal afterlife to the neon village that came up with Juicero, the widely mocked $120 million startup that sold a $400 machine to squeeze packets of juice? That was going well until people realised that you could just as easily squeeze the juice packets by hand. When we still can't master and perfect voice over the internet, are we ready for immortality? And what about ethics? Is it just an English county? After all, isn't it vanity to want to live forever? The field of cryonics in general has come under harsh criticism from prominent neuroscientists like Michael Hendricks. He writes in MIT Technology Review that the idea of preserving a connectomy doesn't work for one of the most well-studied of organisms, C. elegans, a roundworm. Now this roundworm only has 302 neurons, so there's only around 7,000 different connections that you need to create its connectomy, and they've been thoroughly mapped for decades. Now, if it can't be done for the most simple brain that we know of, how can we possibly hope to expand it to humans? Quote, Yet even with the full connectomy in hand, a static model of this network of connections lacks most of the information necessary to simulate the mind of the worm. It is this purposeful conflation of what is theoretically conceivable with what is ever practically possible that exploits people's vulnerability, writes Hendricks. In other words, as Shelley Fan puts it, it's really not clear that Nectomy's technology is going to be anywhere near sufficient to do what they suggest is possible. The Nectomy website includes a TED talk entitled I Am My Connectomy, but it's far from clear that even if you could extract the entire human connectomy from a person's brain, which is still technology that is coming at the end of the century at best, even then we just don't know that you'd have any of the thoughts, memories, or conscious processes that you'd seek to preserve. She writes, quote, in the end, it's unclear what needs to be preserved to retrieve you from the massive tangle of neural connections in your head. Are synapse structures enough? Do we need to capture memory-related proteins too? What about non-neuron cells called glia, which are involved in memory? 
Or is it more feasible to model synaptic strengths of a living brain inside a computer, essentially achieving mind uploading before death? Nectomy has a rebuttal. By 2020, they hope to extract a, quote, high-level bit of memory from a preserved mouse brain. So far, however, they haven't achieved this, and they've made no mention of attempting that feat in a preserved human brain. End quote. There's also the elaborate question of whether one single static frame of the human brain can really capture what you'd want it to, can really capture consciousness. Is all of the information there, even if you have the technology to retrieve it? Here, the philosophical problem of what consciousness is, it isn't just philosophical, it's biological. To say you can preserve it, you need to be sure that you've captured everything relating to it. When you look at a still photograph from your youth, you bring a lot of context to it. Information about the day it was taken, the people concerned, how you were feeling at the time, which is far more than what's contained in a single snapshot. Similarly, even if you could instantaneously reconstruct your brain down to the most accurate detail, there's no guarantee that a single thought or memory would be transferred if you were constructing from a single instantaneous frame. Shelley explains, quote, The living brain, after all, is constantly in motion. Neuroscientists often capture a fleeting neural process by sticking electrodes into the brain to pick up electrical signals, or they use glow-in-the-dark protein sensors to monitor neural activity. In other words, like any other biological processes, a thought is dynamic. It's impossible to reconstruct an entire human being using his DNA letters alone. It's the expression of the DNA, based on complex interactions between the human and their environment, that makes the person themselves. Similarly, it's entirely possible that you can't reconstruct a history of neural activity from a fixed brain. Hell, it's likely that you can't even isolate a single memory trace from an entirely mapped connectomy. End quote. And as far as the ethics of something like this is concerned, for nectomy precisely, Hendrix was even more critical. Burdening future generations with our brain banks is just comically arrogant. Aren't we leaving them with enough problems? Hendrix was quoted as saying. I hope future people are appalled that in the 21st century, the richest and most comfortable people in history spent their money and resources trying to live forever on the backs of their descendants. I mean, it's a joke, right? They are cartoon bad guys. End quote. And recently, it turned out that MIT, whose graduate founded the project and who had lent it their intellectual credibility, well, they've sort of quietly agreed with the whole cartoon bad guys assessment. After reviewing the scientific premises underlying the company's commercial plans, as well as certain public statements that the company has made, MIT will terminate the subcontract between MIT and Nectomy in accordance with the terms of their agreement. The Nectomy website, once so triumphalist, if a little wordpressy, now carries a massive disclaimer at the top, response to recent press, which points out all of the caveats of their system. They don't know yet whether the technique could be used on humans, or if it could preserve all the levels of detail necessary to actually scan and reproduce the human brain in any meaningful way. It also comments on the controversy that the brash announcement at Y Combinator has caused. It says, quote, Feedback from neuroscientists and thoughtful discussions from medical ethicists must be incorporated. We believe that clinical human brain preservation has immense potential to benefit humanity, but only if it is developed in the light, with input from medical and neuroscience experts. We believe that rushing to apply vitrification today would be extremely irresponsible and hurt eventual adoption of a validated protocol. End quote. 
Well, that's a far cry from the startup pitch which obviously leaves out the caveats and was offering people to join a waiting list for $10,000, but people will be glad that that $10,000 is refundable. So yes, Nectomy and Alcor as well almost certainly cannot offer the service that they claim to provide. There are perfectly valid reasons to be interested in medically preserving bodies and brains to exquisite detail, as well as imaging brains and attempting to reconstruct them. After all, one of the reasons brain preservation is considered is to help understand neurological diseases like dementia, and lots of AI architecture draws at least conceptual ideas from the structure of the brain. But as far as bringing people back to life goes, I doubt anyone involved in either of these projects is ever going to be revived. Sure, if you're a selfish billionaire, leaving aside a few million for a 1% chance or a 0.01% chance of someday being brought back to life by some 22nd century Victor Frankenstein probably seems like a pretty decent wager. But it seems to be out of reach at the moment. Maybe forever. Will it be this way forever? If technology continues to march forwards, maybe not. And if someday... It turns out that we can understand and upload human consciousness, if these concepts actually make biological sense, as well as being ideas that we can come up with for science fiction. Then we'll have to raise the questions that the startup raises. Unanswered and perhaps unanswerable ethical and philosophical questions, as many of the ideas beloved of the transhumanist movement raise. The idea of spending money so that future generations will create a precise replica of you to live in whatever world there is then, Seems like a hopelessly sad and vain one. After all, the you that is listening to these words is, in all likelihood, long dead at this point. Now, perhaps our philosophical perspectives and attitudes will shift as technology advances, and the lines between human and post-human begin to blur. Perhaps we romanticise mortality because we had to live with it, because we have no other choice, and because we're afraid of death, in awe of death, which we then have to elevate as a great, unquestionable inevitability, even as we seek to delay it for as long as possible with medical science. We collect our fears and turn them into gods. But it's not inconceivable that someday, the idea of being limited to a lifespan of the length we have today will seem to be the real tragedy. We're certainly not there yet. But naive, romanticised notion that it may be, it's hard to shake the feeling that everything should when it's time, end. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. I'd like to thank Shelley Fan for her excellent article on nectomy that gave me a much deeper dive into the neuroscience than lots of other places and the encouragement. You can read her work over at Singularity Hub, where I also have a weekly article dealing with similar themes and topics. That's our show for this week. You can follow us on Twitter at PhysicsPod. We've got a Facebook page if you're still there. You can contact us with your comments, questions, concerns, all kinds of things, via the contact form over at www.physicspodcast.com. I read everything and respond to everything that makes sense, and if you want to tell me what you'd like to hear from the show, I'd love to hear it. You can donate to the show via links on that same website. If you don't want to go to the hassle of doing that, though, please tell as many people as you can about the show. That way, we've got an audience. Upcoming episodes include the apocalypses that didn't happen, the ways we might hope to avoid them in the future, and where to go next. I'll see you soon. Until then, take care and don't give any startups $10,000 to kill you, just in case they're a little bit less scrupulous. <laughs>